This week, we have a panel discussion with Brian Peterson, Aaron Bobnick, and Thomas Heaton, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I'm incredibly excited about this week's episode because I got to sit down with three of probably the most influential photographers that I can think of, Thomas Heaton, Aaron Bobnick, and Brian Peterson. Thomas is best known for his YouTube channel where he does a lot of vlogs and kind of behind the scenes of the various adventures and photo shoots that he does. Really, really inspirational videos. I've been a huge Thomas Heaton fan for a long time, so it was really cool to get to hang out with him all week and to get to sit down and chat with him a whole bunch of times, including this conversation that you're about to hear. Also, we have Aaron Bobnick on this panel. We've had Erin on the show before. She really knows her stuff. She's just an amazing photographer, really interesting to listen to when she talks about composition and inspiration, really, really knows her stuff. Uh, and I absolutely love Aaron's work. And then, of course, Brian Peterson. Brian is probably one of the most entertaining presenters that there is out there. Really, really a fun guy. He's been doing this for 40 years, knows his stuff. He's made a living in, with landscape and photography for a long time, really knows his stuff and really has some great perspectives on things. So that's what you're about to hear. This was a panel discussion recorded at the Out of Acadia Conference. Just got done doing that this past week. This was in Acadia National Park in Maine. Really a cool conference. We would go out, we would shoot in the mornings, we would come back and have presentations and post-processing classes all throughout the day with the different instructors, which we had at least probably 20 different instructors. And then we would go out and shoot at night again. Everybody's exhausted, but it was really cool to just rub elbows with your favorite photographers throughout the week. So that's what you're about to hear. This was a panel discussion with myself, Thomas Heaton, Aaron Bobnick, and Brian Peterson recorded in front of a live audience. So I hope you enjoy it. So I'm lucky enough to be sitting down with three of the most amazing photographers. And uh, so I have Thomas Heaton sitting next to me. Yes. Aaron Bobnick and Brian Peterson. And it's pretty cool to get to hang out with these guys. So we're in Acadia National Park and we have, I don't know, about 40 faces staring back at us. And we're going to try not to look too deeply into their eyes and get, get hung up on that. So one of the things that we were kind of talking about beforehand what do you do when you start feeling kind of creatively burnt out? It's one of those things that everybody goes through eventually, especially if you shoot a whole lot, is that you reach that point where you start to just lose your mojo. And I think that you guys are perfect people to talk to. So Thomas, you shoot a whole lot now, now that you're full time. What kinds of things or where are you drawing inspiration from? How do you deal with getting burnout and just feeling used up? Well, my, my technique is when I'm out with my camera and I can't find a composition, I just stop looking. So I just stop looking and I just carry on walking and then something will jump out at me and, and then hopefully I'll have a composition. And it's the same with creative burnout. So every August I have a terrible time where I call it the photography blues when the days are long, the days are hot, the sun rises are far too early, the sun sets are far too late and I just don't want to photograph um, and the way I get over my creative block is just to have a break. I just cull all things photography. So I'll have a few days when I stop going on social media 
stop looking at other people's work and I just switch off. And it's just a matter of time until I feel that twinge in my stomach whereby I need to go out and shoot something. Maybe the light will become good. I'll be inspired. Um, and so for me, it's really important to have a break because you can have too much of a good thing. I was dealing with burnout really, really bad. It was probably uh, six months ago or something. And Aaron gave me some of the best feedback for that kind of stuff. So Aaron, what advice do you have for people that are reaching or approaching burnout? Uh, well, I would have two different sets of advice. One would be whether you're in the field or not in the field. And I think the advice that you're talking about is when you're just sort of in general and not necessarily in the field. Yeah. And when you really are burnt out on output, it's time for some input. I think. And the best thing that you can do is go look at the work of other photographers, go to a museum, take in a bunch of art. doesn't have to be photography. Just go find something that's inspiring. And eventually that spark will light again. So true. So true. Because like, besides like, if you're not really feeling your own photography, you're probably not going to be doing your best work anyways. If you're like just still pumping out photos and, and, and just totally down on yourself the whole time, Brian, I bet you never, ever have been burnt out in your entire life. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what words of wisdom can we get from you? Uh, golf. <laughs> and gambling. <laughs> gambling. Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, go to the casino. And that's it. Yeah. But that's hard to do because you're watching the guy deal and you're thinking, what would that look like at a quarter second? You know, is it? <laughs> so, yeah. You know me. Everything I've ever shot, I like to go back and shoot it again with a nude. So. <laughs> yeah, everything looks better so. with a pretty, pretty nude. Yep. So. Or handsome nude. But we're not saying either one. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, Aaron, one of the things that you said is uh, focus on input, and the question kind of becomes, okay, well, what kind of input? Where do you guys draw inspiration from outside of photography? Um, my inspiration outside of photography. So when I'm not looking at other people's work um, online or in books. Um, I, I have a dog. I'm very fortunate to have a dog, Monty. And Most inspirational dog ever. That dog needs walking three times a day. <laughs> uh, other than a camera, a dog is a fantastic excuse to just aimlessly walk. And when I'm not with the camera and I'm not looking for things to photograph, things find me. And that's, that's where I draw my inspiration. So I go to places with the dog that I wouldn't necessarily go to with a camera because there isn't necessarily a composition there. But the great thing is there always is. So you find yourself in locations that are never photographed. I, I think the holy grail of landscape photography is finding that unique image, that, that location that has never been photographed before. Um, because we all know it's, it's a very saturated market these days. So I, I take the dog out and I go to a new place every time I take him out, a new beach or a new woodland, a new park. And I'm always seeing things. And I always keep my phone in my pocket and just keep snapshots of everything. And before I know it, that's, that's inspiring me to grab my camera and go out and try and create intimate, original work. And that, yeah, that keeps me going. How about you, Brian? Years ago, uh, when you could really make a serious income in stock, uh, an editor shared some advice with me that was, to this day, it's, it's embraced uh, wholeheartedly. And that is when I'm in a rut, uh, I will do one of two things. And I would suggest that you give this consideration too, is you choose from this list of words I'm about to share with you, decisiveness, ambition, carelessness, security, safety. Just take those words and illustrate with 12 unique 
photographs. And so help me God, don't go out and shoot a padlock. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's so not what we're looking for. We're looking for a bend in a blade of grass next to another blade of grass. Maybe one's thin, one's thick, and the grass is leaning into the thicker grass. And you do a nice composition of that, and it looks very much like an image of security. Like a mother's hugging the grass. Okay, the baby grass. Those kinds of things. Not only does it keep you from getting burned out, but it will frustrate the hell out of you. Because you can imagine so many things and then you start looking for this and uh, the list is endless. I can only tell you that. But the execution, as often is the case, is what your biggest challenge will be. There's no shortage of words that demonstrate ambition, but the execution becomes the real challenge. The other thing is years and years and years ago, I used to uh, go to a book produced by Penguin, famous quotations. And I would visually illustrate those quotations as personal assignments. And probably the most often one I photographed back then was the quotation, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. How many ways can you illustrate that? You can go to a shoe store and shoot a rack of shoes. You could put a shoe on a map. You could shoot footprints. Uh, you could shoot a single shoe in the middle of a road with the you know highway going off in the distance. Um, the list is endless. So anyway, there you go. Those are some ideas. Okay. Kind of, so kind of thinking outside the box, getting outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron. Uh, well, where I find inspiration outside of photography was the question. Um, I writing for me, I have a, and reading other people's writing is what I mean, but also my own writing, but I have a big library at home of books that are not just on photography, but that are on art history on philosophy on the on aesthetics. And, the, and uh, so I just dive into some of my favorite uh, books and I start reading, whether it's something on Galen Rall or something on um, Hellenistic Greek sculpture, usually something that's, you know, whatever that little block is in my mind that just isn't kind of singing for me that day will, you know, something will just, mm-hmm. it'll, I'll make that connection because that's probably in there just sort of eating away at me. And I'm, and I'm unconsciously, you know, looking for the, the thing to unblock it and it just seems to work every time. So I would recommend go out and read. And inspiration is funny because it can come from like creative endeavors outside of photography. Some of, some of the areas that I love to get inspired from are just like sitting down and watching movies. I don't get to watch much TV anymore, but when I do, I'm constantly just like obsessed with the light and like light direction and like, Oh, how did they color grade that? That's amazing. And I jokingly say that I'm going to get all Bob Ross on this, but it's a real thing. Like sitting down and just watching the joy of painting is like one of the most inspirational things for me <laughs> because I think we've all, how many people have watched the joy of painting? Fair, fair, okay. You know, he gets this beautiful landscape and then he gets that big black brush and does a giant streak right down the middle of it. You're like, ah, you know, you get that. Like, I can't believe that he's brave enough to paint that tree. It's just so interesting to me how inspirational that can be because it you start to think like a painter. There's so much you can learn from painting when it comes to photography as far as like light and dimension and art and only including what, what the artist is is intending to include. So we did have a couple questions come in. Uh, one of them was, what is the most frightened you've been out on a shoot? Like when was the most death defined scary time? 
Aaron, what do you got? Oh, wow. The day almost died. <laughs> I, was, I accidentally ended up, well, it wasn't really accidentally. I had a mismarked map that told me I was going on an expert path when it really was a via ferrata, which is the Italian term for the iron way. You're supposed to path equipment on this. I'd be clipped in with, you know, that a sounds harness fairly serious. Yeah. <laughs> so I had my full pack and tripod and everything on my back and I'm basically like hanging off of cliffs and, <laughs> um, and I got out on this uh, cliff where there was this uh, undercut and I have, this was after four hours of doing this. And I was completely spent. My arms were just done. Everything was done. Um, and I was just trying to find a way off of this thing. <laughs> I got like stuck like a cat in a tree. And uh, I got down to where I couldn't put my foot on the next peg and I couldn't also pull myself back up. And there was about a thousand feet drop beneath me and I was like okay I can't go up I can't go down I'm dead and then it started snowing like oh great (laughs) this is perfect so uh, I just remembered like what um what the really like uh, extreme climbers do is they scream when they're in those kinds of situations with a, every pull and it really does help. And I was just like, just, dude, that sounds so epic. It That's was like really straight out of a movie. not <laughs> epic. It was really kind of pathetic and I should never have gotten myself into that situation. Uh, Don't try this at home kids. Yeah. <laughs> but I did get myself out of that, but I had to go four hours back through all that stuff. Cause there was no way to go down that way. So oh man. How about, how about you, Brian? can probably think of many, but the one that stands out the most would be, I was in Burundi, Bujumbura, during the Hutu and Tutsi altercations, and I was arrested. Uh, I won't go into the details as to why, but um, <laughs> wrong place, innocent, wrong, wrong by the time. Way, totally innocent. And the company I was working for is a Dutch company uh, doing a corporate shoot, and um, they uh, were missing me at breakfast the next day and didn't know where I was, and I was in jail. Anyway, it took two days. I got out of jail. And I didn't realize how much that affected me because I finally got out of there and I landed in Brussels and then flew to LA and I landed in LA. Uh, when I came out of customs, I, I was not done flying. I still had to go to Portland, but I came out of customs. There was nobody there to meet me, but I landed and, and it's like postpartum or not postpartum. That's pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does sound scary. He wasn't really sure that he oh, wanted to be you, a father. I was rough. <laughs> Uh, PTSD or whatever they call it. Uh, cause as soon as I came out the doors of customs, I, um, I cried, uh, but I screamed at the same time. I, and I remember saying this and people looking at me like I had two heads because like, God bless America. <laughs> and, uh, so glad to be home. And they were like, uh, making a, like the, the parting of the Red Sea, you know, They'd, let this guy through, you know, get this crazy guy out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you're in a foreign country like that and your, your life is at, really at risk. I mean, I was getting threatened and. It just felt good to be back home on American soil. How about you, Thomas? Uh, how do I top that? <laughs> I am. Um, co- birth to twins. I there, I was yeah, really. a, there I was in a Russian prison. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe my scariest moment was, was checking in to come to this conference and realizing I didn't have the visa to get over to the States. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a scary moment. No, I, I think fear is, fear is very, it's relative. And fear comes from many forms and it can manifest itself in some extreme situations, such as Erin was talking about. And sometimes fear can mas- manifest itself from the, the most benign things. And I, I have these moments, and I'm going to talk about one moment, which sounds ridiculous, but as I say, fear is relative. So if you get these ideas in your head, then they, you can, they, they can run away with you. So last year, I was in Zion National Park, and I was in the Narrows. It's such a nice 
experience. It's 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 a lovely place to be. If anybody's ever been in the Narrows, it's it's a, a tall canyon gorge with a river, and you hike up the river. And I was so adamant on being the first one in the Narrows. I needed to be in there, away from the crowds, getting the images. And you get a bus, and the first bus is at 7 a.m., and it drops you off at the start of the trail, and it's pitch black. And I was on the bus, and I jumped off the bus, my head down, and I just went. I said, I've got to be first, got to be first. There's loads of people on the bus. Um, and I went straight into the Narrows, and I was hiking and hiking and hiking, and I was saying, no, not yet. I'm going to keep going and keep going. And I worked out afterwards. I'd probably hiked about four miles into the Narrows, so I'd been going for a, a, a good couple of hours. And I realized after a couple of hours of just constant hiking, around me was just complete silence. There was nobody. And I thought, this can't be right. And it was probably about 10 a.m. I thought, where are all the tourists? Where's all the iPhones and the selfies? And it was dead silent. And I looked up at the sky through, and it was so claustrophobic and the sky was gray. And I thought, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> I've, I'd convinced myself that there were flash floods coming because I did not check the flash flood indicator that is at the start of the trail. So you go on the trail and there's a, the flash flood warning saying unlikely and then, you know, danger. And, and there's, a, there's an arrow that indicates what the likelihood of a flash flood is. And I didn't check this because it was dark and I was, I was so adamant on getting into the narrows. So I, I have 100% convinced myself that there is a wall of water coming towards me. I'm four miles into the narrows. There's nobody around. It's completely silent. They've closed off the narrows and they're not letting people in. And this was all real in my head. And then I started to convince myself that the water levels were rising. And I was like, it wasn't this deep. It wasn't this deep before. I'm like, right, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And I, I turned around. And I started hiking so fast, like ridiculously fast out of the narrows. And it's now claustrophobic. The walls are thousands of feet high and incredibly narrow. And I started to try and calm myself down. And I said, no, this is, this can't be the case. We're fine. It's fine. But I kept walking and kept walking, still convinced that the water levels were rising. And then <laughs> around the bend, a mile down the narrows, and I, I saw hordes of tourists with their iPhones and selfies dicks. <laughs> And it was the only time I've ever been relieved to see groups of tourists with iPhones. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, and the mistake wasn't that I'd freaked myself out because that happens. It's kind of like a defense mechanism. The mistake I made was not, not checking before I went in. I didn't do the research. I didn't check. I just, I just went in. And yeah, so that, that was a funny one. That was a really scary 15 minutes. And it's funny how I, the fear manifested itself. I got carried away with my own thoughts. And really, it was fine. I checked the flash flood indicator and it was a highly unlikely. So it was all over nothing. And you were the first person in. You I just was didn't the take first person <laughs> I actually think I took a photograph and it was whilst I was taking the photograph, I realized how quiet it was. Uh, I thought, hang on a minute. What's wrong here? And then, yeah. This isn't right. Yeah. One of the times that I've been the most afraid was... As you see, if you were at my talk, I shoot water a lot and I'm around big surf a lot and it's kind of like moth to a flame, but it is some of the most dangerous conditions you can ever be around. Oregon coast, there are some places that you just do not go. And of course I went there and uh, there's this place called Cape Kiwanda. It's at Pacific City, Oregon. And there's this place that's referred to as the bowl. And it's this beautiful place where these big surf, it comes in and it splashes up and then recedes down this kind of uh, bowl of slick sandstone. 
and knowing that, you know, you need to watch the waves for a while. I stood at the top and I watched waves for a solid 15 minutes and I saw where they're coming consistently, watched the big ones. I was like, okay, it's totally dry down there. I'm going to walk down there, set up and take a photo. So I go down there and it's kind of on this downward slope and I'm like up, you know, 75 feet up above water level. I'm thinking no way is a wave coming up here. I set up and not even three waves in this giant wave just comes in splashes and it goes 15 to 20 feet over my head back behind me. And remember I'm on this bowl slope. So all that thousands of gallons of water goes back behind me and then wants to just flush you out into the ocean. And the only way I could like have enough traction because I'm on slick sandstone and there's a bunch of water about to flush me down the toilet is I had to grab my tripod and like wedge it down into the sandstone. So I had some grip and like shove my L bracket down and just like hang on. And all this water just like rushed back beyond me. And then I knew like waves come in sets. So like I need to get out of there before the next wave. And I had to turn and like start climbing up this slick sandstone that just got wetted down and so terrified and because people have gotten flushed out and died there because this is a an area where if you go into the ocean you can't get back out it's just cliff faces and big waves beating you against stuff so very close very stupid uh, that's that's the um, temptation of water is like you want to get closer and photograph it and then then the water comes and gets you uh, same thing at that one place at Vic I know Brian's shot there the waves there are People die there every year from getting too close. And on my workshop, we were actually walking back and I had a couple guys that were a solid 40 feet away from the way where the waves were reaching and two grown men walking up, being careful. And this one rogue wave just comes up and it knocks them both over to the point where it snapped a Gitzo leg in half, destroyed a D810 and almost it knocked them both over and almost sucked one in as just random rogue wave. So... I guess the moral of this particular story is be careful around ocean because it yeah, can be sketchy. Vic is terrifying. Oh, it is <laughs> the angriest water ever. It's because this the it's so steep there, yeah, and you can't escape no. those, those cliffs. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And to get out to those sea stacks, you kind of have to you walk through a little narrow opening and then it kind of opens up so you're out there and you're shooting you're having a good time and then you look back and oh the beach closed behind me and there's nothing but a giant like 200 foot tall cliff behind me that's not going to end well another question that we had come in was how do you know when you're done editing a photo brian peterson how do you know when you're done editing a photo i'm old school in this respect Uh, i grew up on slide film uh, going all the way back to 1970 so you you really learned how to edit in camera. And by edit, I'm referring to the composition. And then you, saw, you showed slides. That was your portfolio back in the day. And believe it or not, in a carousel. And then people got smart and started making duplicates onto four by five. And then you'd mount these on cardboard and then you'd show your cardboard portfolio with four by fives. And so now digital comes along and my God, this is like a smorgasbord of stuff that you can do. And quite honestly, um, I'm aware of most of it, but I'm still finding, I'm still that old school guy. Uh, I mentioned this just a minute ago to a few of the people here and they're editing, that it comes in to bridge. I made my selects of the ones that, of the six out of whatever, put them in Photoshop. I do a quick selective color, run through and I'm done. 
Uh, I know there's all these mask and luminosity things, and I'm, I'm sure I'm missing the boat on some of this stuff, but as what's the saying? You can't teach an old dog new tricks, I guess. So anyway, did you just call yourself an old dog? I did. Yeah. Yeah. A son of a, yeah, whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't, um, maybe I'm missing the boat on this, but I, um, I'm, I'm not unhappy. Oh no. And no. anybody that looks at your portfolio isn't unhappy. Well, either. I, I don't mean it like that, I'm, but that's my style. I mean, I, I I'm a mm-hmm. color guy and I, I do do selective color. Um, I don't understand. And it's not meant to, to be any, any, uh, judgment of people, me personally, and, and I, you, this isn't something that happens overnight, but when you know you have to live within that slide frame, you find ways to make the composition work. So you learn a tremendous amount about lens choice and point of view. That's obviously carried with me. So I don't like, I, I really just want to be done. You know, I, I just, I'm done and uh, I don't have to do anything drastic in Photoshop. Thomas, you're not a very heavy post-processor either, are you? No, apart from black and white. So, no, I, I, my, my general thing is I like to keep things as close to how I saw them as possible because that's the whole point of being out there to witness these amazing things. Um, um, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not always like that. Sometimes I take an image and it just, ne- like I, I shot an image in the Alps last week and it was in the middle of a snowstorm. Um, so there was very little detail. Or the, you know, the raw file had very little detail, should I say the preview. But when I started adjusting the dehaze tool, which I very rarely use, um, and then I converted to black and white and I boosted that contrast all the way. And then I added clarity and I was doing everything that you really shouldn't do. But it just made the image so raw and so rugged. So there are occasions where I'll go to town on an image. Um, but, you know, that is very few and far between. I mean, I, I shoot um, film as well and do very little editing because I just love just getting it right in camera and keeping it real. But yeah, I, I'm sort of similar to Brian. I, I don't use the luminos- luminosity masks, which I'm sure I'm missing a trick there. But um, I'll show you a video. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, I use- Make I that use, too. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take a look. An array of filters and try and get it right in camera and just be in amazing places with amazing light yeah. and try and capture it rather than- capturing something and then trying to make it amazing afterwards. Um, I'm not at all, you know, being down on processing. Processing processing is incredible and powerful. Um, But for me, the most powerful processing tool is probably the crop tool. Right. Um, That can really help. I think there's like two, two schools of thought. Like if you broke everybody down into two groups, there's the group that is content with what they see. And there's the group that is constantly looking at nature and being like, I wish it was this way. And, uh, I did a gallery show. It wasn't a great gallery show, but I did a gallery show once where the name of it was disenchanted with reality. And I feel like that kind of sums up my photography in a way. I'm a big fantasy nerd. Like I'm a Lord of the Rings, you know, kind of guy. There we go. I like that guy right there. He gets a gold star for the day. And so like, I kind of, I look at a scene and I, I, I want to milk out the most of it, but still keep it real to what I saw just because I saw it with a whole lot more contrast and a little bit more saturation and slightly different color palette. You know, I, it's still the literal subject that was there, just milking the absolute most out of the sky or the absolute most out of the textures and the contrast that I could get away with without, without actually compositing in um, stuff that wasn't there. And also like, I'm not a sky replacement kind of person either because 
me personally, I feel like replacing this guy and dropping one into a scene where it wasn't happening completely takes the fun out of chasing those real skies. Like one of the most fun, entertaining things in landscape photography is trying to get the light to line up with that subject that you've been chasing so often or so many times. And that satisfaction of finally getting everything to line up is like half of the fun for me. And if I was dropping in fake skies, it would totally take that away from myself. Aaron, you well, are I'll, an amazing yeah. post. <laughs> well, I'll be the oddball here. Yep. I mean, what I do is actually fairly conservative. I don't drop in skies. I don't move mountains around or anything aside mm-hmm. from unless you want to call a focal length blend moving a mountain, but I don't, you know, I don't create fantasy worlds, but I do a lot of post-processing because to me, um, I'll be the absolute oddball here and saying that to me, my engagement with the natural world is not, um, my experience of it. It's me. It's all about me to the photography. Sorry. It's a selfish thing for me, but it's personal expression. I, unapologetic about calling myself an artist and what I'm doing is in expressing things through the landscape. It's my vehicle for expressing things that are inside me that are bigger, more sort of metaphorical ideas that I want to work out. And, um, if other people like it too, then, then great. And so to me, it's sort of an exchange between me and the landscape. And I don't feel any kind of burden to, um, represent the landscape in a particular way at all. But, um, that said, I do, because it is part of my experience, I do have a certain kind of a very straightforward address to what I'm photographing because otherwise it wouldn't be my experience necessarily, but maybe in some cases it could be still. And and, um, so I I think that's a really gray area even to say where that starts and stops. But so that's, that's sort of my approach. But to answer the question about when you're done. (laughs) Oh yeah. Which we didn't even answer. Yeah. Processing. Let's talk about us for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, for me, uh, I, I think there are three things that need to happen when I know that I'm done and, and two of them need to be done first, which is first, I need to kind of feel like nothing's really bothering me about it anymore. There are no little anomalies that I need to touch up. Um, the tonal range, the colors are harmonizing, you know, nothing's really bugging me. Uh, then, then at that point I'm past like the first stage. The second stage is just the incubation period. And I just put the thing away for a while. I don't Man, your look approach at is it. so scientific, but <laughs> she has an incubation stage for her photos. That's amazing. Oh yeah. You, you don't have one of those incubators? No. Oh, you can get them real cheap at hunts. Um, <laughs> I recommend them. You, you need that. So yeah. Um, so yeah, then I just sort of walk away from the photo and I might do it for a long time, but the third thing is when I get back to it and if I get that little jolt of excitement out of it, that little thrill, like, Ooh, wow, I love this, then it's done. Um, and what if so, you never get that about your You photo? know what? Those never make it into my portfolio. I wouldn't have a portfolio, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I do have those. And they're, they're, there they sit. Sometimes I'll put them out in like a blog post or something educational because they're good for representing something else, but they don't live in my portfolio. I want to go down the line and kind of uh, ask you guys if they're in with all of these excursions and all of our like interactions with the students and stuff. What is the one thing that you found yourself repeating the most? What one tip or what one suggestion did you find yourself repeating the most to the people that you guys are instructing? Brian, let's start with you. I didn't talk to anybody. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, I, that's a, I asked everybody what they were having troubles with and, um, were there any reoccurring themes? Yeah, there was. Um, the biggest was, um, actually two, I'd say it was a tie, uh, composition and seeing color. Those were the two. 
So it's yeah. always composition. Yeah. Yeah. That people need help with the most. Was there like a particular tip or something that you were giving people over and over and over in regards to composition? Um, I have a lot of uh, go-to tips, um, but uh, you know, my standard one is I'll give some advice for so, so things that are uh, likely to be uh, fruitful, but I also encourage people to, uh, to just take a step back and examine what it is that really attracted them to end up wherever it was pointing in the direction that they are yeah. uh, and to ask themselves, how can they best emphasize whatever it is about that, that they found um, so uh, enchanting to find a way to emphasize that and really communicate it, put that forward so that it registers to other people as well. Cool. Thomas. Yeah. Same composition came up a lot and uh, similar to Erin's answer. It's, it's about asking yourself what, what is it that you like about this so much and how can you, emphasize that um, and simplify things. Um, mm -hmm. But the, I say technically, the biggest tip I tried to give everyone was to expose using the histogram. There were a few people who didn't know about this and it blew their minds. <laughs> it was it was really good. You could <laughs> you know, in the menu, go into the menu and, and you can bring up the histogram on your screen. Mm -hmm. And that histogram is so accurate compared to just looking at the back of your screen and trying to judge if it's exposed correctly because you, know, you may have direct sunlight hitting the screen, screens are calibrated differently, each camera's different, but by using the histogram, you know, assuming that that person is shooting a raw file, so long as they're not clipping the whites and clipping the blacks, then they, they can be reassured that they have a good exposure. And I, I shout this at everybody as well, just after you've taken an image, just take two seconds and check it, just, just go into playback, Zoom in, check your focus, check your exposure. Right, okay, then move on. Because I've seen so many people think they've got an awesome image and I've yeah. done it myself. Oh. And then you go home, you open it up on the big screen and it, there's camera motion or you know something's you've missed the focus, it's not quite mm -hmm. right. So just to take 10 seconds after, you've, after each image and just um, be diligent and check it. I think one of the reasons that composition has come up with all of us so much is because Acadia National Park, not the most obvious compositions out there. It's like a compositional exercise. You go out there and you're like, which crack do I want to photograph? Because, <laughs> you know, you have to come up with that compositional idea to make a solid photo. One of the things that I say often and I, I noticed in all of my groups is that you go out and if you get the tripod out and you get put the camera on the tripod too soon, you stop exploring. And you, like the tripod grows roots and it kind of stays there and you swivel it beside the side up and down and it, you never, you stop moving. So one of the things that I encourage everybody to do, especially with the remainder of your guys' shoots and anybody that's listening to this, when you go out to shoot is to, before you get your camera out, before you set up the tripod, just walk around and explore, maybe have your camera just in live view and kind of play around with holding it low and holding it high. And what happens if I go over here and just explore and be creative right off the bat before you get technical? Because as soon as you get technical, the creativity kind of stops because you go into photographer mode and like, okay, what settings am I going to use? And you kind of, your mind goes towards all of the technical problems rather than going to be creative. So start off creative, then get technical and you'll find a better composition that way. Walk around, find that composition and then put your tripod there rather than like setting the tripod up and then starting to look at the stuff around you. So thank you guys so much for hanging out with me and thank you guys for coming and watching this. This is the live edition of the Landscape Photography Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe and we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.
The ironic thing is that you can't like a podcast. <laughs> you can subscribe, <laughs> but that's the YouTube. So I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> so why is it that everybody is saying, oh, he's amazing on YouTube, and I've never heard of you? Uh, <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, you're obviously not in the right circles here. You need to. Uh... Yeah, it's because that's not actually YouTube you're watching. Yeah. <laughs> it's you something. <laughs> yeah, it's you something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's a completely Wait, we're, different. We're not recording website. this yet, are we? <laughs> oh, we <laughs> My wife will be listening. <laughs>